Well, one day there were three men who were talking about how they decided how to give to God. And this one guy said to his friends, he said, what I'll do is I draw a circle on the ground and I get in the middle of it and I take all my money and I throw it up into the air. And whatever lands inside the circle is God's and whatever lands outside is mine. Now his friend said, you know, that's amazing. I do something similar. I too draw a circle and I get in the middle and I throw all my money up in the air, but I give to God whatever lands outside the circle and what's inside is mine. And the third friend said, man, this is amazing because I also use a circle. I draw the circle. I stand in the middle. I take all my money and I throw it up in the air and whatever God catches is his. As you think about how you give to God, how, how do you decide? How do you decide what it is that you're going to give to God? Well, as we turn in our Bible today to Acts chapter 5, we're going to see that there are three different people that are mentioned here who all made decisions on what they would give to God. Now, as we turn there, last week we saw in the last part of chapter 4 one of the people that I'm talking about. His name was Barnabas. And it tells us in Acts 4, 36 through 37, now Joseph a Levite of Cyprian birth who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. And he owned a tract of land. He sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the other two people that are mentioned are in Acts 5, and they're a husband and wife uh, family. And what we see is as Acts chapter 5 begins, you see that word but. And when you see the word but, it's called a contrastive, connective, and grammatical terms. That's just a big fancy way of saying that what is coming in chapter 5 is connected to what we just read at the end of 4, but there's something different. I want you to see what is different about it. Look with me at Acts chapter 5 and verses 1 through 11. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell dead. And breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up, they covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Well, I imagine it did. Talk about a plot twist. Here you have a guy who had some land. He sells it. He brings the money, he gives it to the leaders of the church. A couple comes along, they also have land, they sell it, and they give the money to the leaders of the church. In the first case, the guy gets a great nickname. In the second case, they get a place in a graveyard. So what does it mean for us today? That if you don't give the right amount of money to God, that you're going to drop dead? No, that's not what it's telling you. 
Let's look at the context here to see what's going on. Remember that what we're looking at is found in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is the history of the early church. It speaks of how God birthed the church at the day of Pentecost. It speaks of how the church was growing. And if you remember, as we've been going through this series in Acts, we've seen that the church was under attack. And the one leading the attack is Satan. He started out by trying to destroy the church first with lies. He said that Jesus Christ, after he was crucified on the cross, did not rise from the dead. Do you remember how early on the apostles were giving defense and saying the Lord, uh, after he was crucified and buried, three days later he rose from the dead? But the religious leaders were spreading this lie saying, hey, the tomb was empty because his body was stolen. But as we saw, the problem was there were about 500 eyewitnesses walking around saying, oh no, the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. We have seen it with our own two eyes. So that strategy didn't work. The next step Satan took was that he tried to destroy the church through persecution. We've seen where the apostles have been arrested, people have been threatened, they've been thrown in prison. And the problem there is, is they, the Romans and the, the uh, Jewish religious leaders were squeezing the church trying to snuff it out. It was kind of like a tube of toothpaste. All it did was spread the church everywhere. And so that's not working. So now what Satan does is he tries the third strategy, which is to attack the church from inside. He figures if he can corrupt the church, if he can change uh, the, the makeup of the believers who were in there. Remember, everybody was amazed at what was happening. They were watching the fellowship and the sharing of things and all this happening. And the church was growing because of the testimony and the community. So what Satan does is he, he tries to destroy that from the inside. Peter says here in Acts 5.3, Satan has filled your heart to lie. We see he's behind it. And the way Satan tries to do this is the same way that he's been at work from the beginning of time. It was the sin that caused him to fall. If you read Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12 and following, you'll see that Satan's sin was pride and envy. He saw the glory of God and he tried to grab God's glory. He said, I'm going to take God's position. I'm going to exalt myself to the place of God. It's what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. He said... (laughs) God doesn't want you to eat of the tree of knowledge because uh, he doesn't want you to be like him. But if you want to be like God, knowing good and evil, eat from the tree. And here we see the the envy that is happening because it's tied to verse 4. There, as we talked about last time, Barnabas was this great guy. And one of the things that he did was he gave this money to meet the needs of those in the church. And as Ananias and Sapphira see this public pat on the back, Everybody says, look at Barnabas. He's this great guy. He's this encourager. They said, you know, we want that too. We want everybody to talk about us. But they didn't want to have to do the same level of sacrifice. So they come up with this plan. And they say, we're going to look like Barnabas by selling property and and letting everybody know we gave the money to the church. But we're going to hold back some of the money. Now, if they really wanted to look like Barnabas, they wouldn't have even been seeking recognition. You recall, as we talked about last time, Barnabas was a guy who didn't say, put my name on the building. He didn't say, I want a seat at the board. What he said is, here's the money. It simply says he laid it at the apostles' feet. Said to the leadership, do with this as God leads you to do. In the Bible, we find where there were those who were giving to, to get recognition. Jesus talked about them in Matthew 6, too. There he says, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward in full. You see, when we give to God, it's not about getting glory for ourselves. 
giving is a way that we glorify God. We find this in uh, 1 Chronicles 16, 29. It says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due whose name? His name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Now, as we look at this text, the Hebrew word that is used there for glory, it's the word kavod. And, and kavod is a word that literally translated means heavy. Heavy is in something is, is, is just got this weight to it. And it was used to speak of, of the conquering soldiers who would go out and when they would defeat a city, they would, they would carry the loot back from the city. And as they paraded through their hometown, they would be loaded down with the loot. And people would say they are kavod, they are covered in glory because they have this, this, this wealth that has been heaped upon them. And when it comes to God, when we worship him, what we are doing, the word worship literally means worth-ship. And you see there that it denotes the worthiness of an individual to receive special honor in accordance with that worth. Now, the scriptures tell us God has his own glory. He's covered in glory. Uh, He doesn't have to have us add to it. But when we worship God, when we sing songs of worship, when we give to God, when we serve God, what we are doing is adding to his glory. We are saying he is worthy to receive our praise. He's worthy to receive our gifts. What we see here is that Ananias and Sapphira brought the money not to add to the glory of God, but they did it to get glory for themselves. Barnabas gave it away, but they sought glory. It wasn't so that others would talk about God, it's so, God would, so that people would talk about them. And you know, it's ironic, we're talking about them here 2,000 years later, aren't we? But not in a good way. Not in a way that gives them glory, but in a way that stands as an example of what we're not to do. And as we look at the consequences that come, it, it says that they were struck down, struck down dead. Now, reading that, uh, we may say, well, that's kind of a little severe. Maybe somebody's squirming in their seat right now saying, uh, I didn't drop anything in the plate. Can it come back around so I don't drop dead here in a moment? Um, that's not what's happening. The sin here isn't that they didn't give the money or the whole amount of money. The sin here, what does it tell you? It's because they lied to God. They tried to deceive the Holy Spirit. The sin wasn't in the amount they gave. It was the motivation and the method in which they gave. And what's happening here, again, remember the context. This is the beginning days of the church. This is in its infancy. People are watching. People are learning. Things are being set. People are, are learning about God. Some of them were Jews who had come to faith in the promised Messiah, Jesus. Others were Gentiles that would be coming in. And people were figuring out, how does the church operate? What should we do? Who is God? What is he doing? And how does he work? And what they were doing was damaging to the body. Because others might follow their example. Others might say, well, you know, God isn't omniscient. God doesn't really know all that's happening. Others would say, you know, God isn't to be treated as holy and and revered. He's to be just, you know, somebody we, we mess around with. And so God sets an example with them as they drop dead. You know, all of us here are guilty of sin. If God judged each of us for our sin immediately, uh, this place would be empty. From the pulpit to the pews, there wouldn't be a single person here. We'd have all dropped dead because the Bible says we're all sinners. And in fact, the the thing that we need to remember is there is a day coming where we will be judged for our sin. Every single one of us. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. We've all earned the penalty of death. 
Now it goes on to tell us, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And sometimes people read that and they say, well, if Jesus died to pay the penalty of sin, which is death, then why do we still die? We have to go on and read in Revelation chapter 20, because in 11 through 15, it speaks of the second death, something called the great white throne judgment. All flesh on this earth is going to cease to exist someday. But then there are those who will stand before the great white throne judgment. Those are the non-believers who said, I did not accept Jesus as my payment. He went to the cross to pay the penalty of sin, which was death. And so they get to pay that penalty themselves. And the scripture calls that the second death, which speaks of eternal separation from God. And so all of us here will be judged with death. Why did God at this moment cause him to drop dead immediately? Well, again, it was the severity of the sin in the context of, of the beginning of the church. We see in Acts 5.11, it had its attended, intended effect because it says there was fear in the church. We read that word fear, and sometimes we think it means this kind of cringing, shaking in our shoes, and I'm, I'm scared to be around God because he's got his finger on the smite button going, who's next? Uh, that's not the fear that God has for his people, the fear there, the word speaks of a reverential awe. It speaks of an understanding of who God is, what his glory means. As New Testament believers, sometimes we make the mistake of saying, hey, Jesus is my wingman, he's my buddy, we're tight and we're just running along, and we forget that he is God. And this this idea of this reverential awe is to, to see him for who he is, That verse I showed you in 1 Chronicles 16, uh, I I showed that to you for a number of reasons. One is because the context is very similar to Acts chapter 5. Now, while the details are different, as you read through 1 Chronicles 16, when you go back a few chapters, you find that there was an incident that happened. That verse is tied to the Ark of the Covenant being brought into Jerusalem. If you know much of the story there, there was a point where the ark was lost to the Philistines. The enemies captured it in a battle, and everywhere the ark went, they were messing with it, and God was causing all kinds of havoc for the enemy to the point the Philistines said, get this thing out of here. And they stuck it on an ark, and they sent it away with nobody driving it, and God led the ark back into Israel. And it was brought in, and it was, it was put in a place, and there was a point where David said, I want to bring the ark of the covenant into its proper place in the temple. And so David in 1 Chronicles 13 goes to get the ark and they they make preparations. There's all this stuff going on and they stick it on a cart and they begin to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Now, as it's going along, it says that the ark kind of got jostled when there was a bump in the road and there was a guy named Uzzah who was one of the priestly guys kind of walking along beside it. And he puts his hand out and grabs it thinking, oh, maybe it's going to tip. And at that moment, boom, he gets struck dead. Now, if you haven't read much of the Bible, you're thinking, gosh, a lot of people are getting struck dead. Uh, It really doesn't happen that much. There are places like uh, Achan and his family at Ai. Again, there's a unique reason. That was as Israel was coming into the land, and God, again, had to make uh, an example of it. So here this guy drops dead. Now, David, King David goes, what? What kind of God is this? How dare he in his anger knock this guy out when all he was trying to do was, was take care of the ark? And David, he says, leave it where it is. We're not bringing it in Jerusalem. You know whose fault it was? It wasn't God's fault. It was David's. It was the priest's fault. Because you go back and you read Numbers 4.15, you see that God said, there are specific instructions I've given to you into how you are to treat the ark. 
and the things that are representative of me that represent the holiness of God. And one of the things he said is, when you move the ark, the priests are to take poles and put them through these rings that he had built onto it. Nobody is to touch the ark. It is to be carried with poles. And there's, there's to be this, this reverence of me and my presence, this representation of me. And what David was more concerned with was the speed and getting it from here to there rather than reverencing God. And you see it had its intended effect. Because in First Chronicles 16... David says, we're going to bring the ark into Jerusalem, and this time, we're going to do it how God said. And again, there's this big preparation and ceremony, and the priests carry it in with the poles. And guess what happens? It gets to Jerusalem. There's no problem. Nobody struck dead. There's, First Chronicles 16 is a psalm of praise, and it speaks of the events surrounding it. And as you look at 1 Chronicles 16.40, uh, it tells us the priests were instructed to offer burnt offerings to the Lord to the, on the altar of burnt offering continually, morning and evening, even according to all that is written in the law of the Lord, which he commanded Israel. So what's happening here is there are different offerings that you see in the scriptures. We're reading in Acts chapter 5 about this offering that Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira give. But then we read about these burnt offerings in that verse 40. So let me explain the different offerings so that you understand what we're dealing with. When it comes to a burnt offering, it's also called a guilt or a sin offering in the scriptures. Uh, These were the things that were done to deal with a person's sin. And as you look at the the New Testament, as believers, we we don't do this. I didn't see anybody bringing goats and bulls and rams and everything in here to be sacrificed this morning. So why don't we do that? Well, we don't do that because Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, 1 John one twenty nine tells us, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus went to the cross to pay that penalty of death that we owe for our sins. He said in John 19.30, Paid in full, it is finished to tell us day, literally paid in full. And so he's paid the penalty in full for those who have turned to him as their savior. And, and, and I, I am so thankful. Believe me, I am not trying to go back to the law. I do not want to live under the Old Testament law. And yet one of the things that I think we forget as New Testament believers sometimes is the cost of our sin. You see, we've heard about that. And there are moments where we think about that. But we come here on a Sunday... And we're not bringing animals with us. We're not having to be reminded, man, this, this was a bad week. I, I did not live for the Lord. And when you were sinning in that day, it cost you. There was a physical reminder to you. There was a hit to your pocketbook. I mean, people would have to go to their flock. And they didn't say, where's the oldest, crippled, most deformed animal that I can't get you know, anything for anyway, they were told to bring the best, the unblemished of their flock. This was the most expensive you had thing in your portfolio. This was your breeding stock. This is what would not only be valuable at the moment, but would multiply your assets as it would produce more and more animals. And you had to bring it to the temple. And many people didn't live in Jerusalem. And so they had to travel. So there was not only the cost of your animal, there was the the cost of time as you had to travel. There was the cost of of being on the road and staying in places. And and so there was that additional cost. 
And you would come to the temple, you would go up on the temple mound, and there was this, this outside courtyard, and then you, you went into this inner court, and then beyond that there was another court called the Court of Women, and women could go to that point, and then beyond that was the Court of Men that went into a place where there was a rail, and beyond the rail was the, the brazen altar, this massive place where the sacrifices were offered, and, and the, the bronze seer was there and then beyond that was the actual temple and inside that was the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant was and as a man you would bring your your sacrifice in so it might be yours your family's you would you would come to this altar where the priests and levites were on the other side and they would they would have you lay your hands on the animal to to symbolize transferring your guilt to this animal so again, you were thinking about it. You had to think about it the whole time as you're traveling and, and watching this animal. And you come in and, and everybody could tell what you had done by looking at your sacrifices. Oof, yeah. And so you're, you're there and, and you, you offer this sacrifice and the priest would cut its throat and the blood would run out literally through your hands into this, this basin that would collect it. And that blood would be thrown on the side of this brazen altar. Have you ever smelled burning flesh? I'm not talking about the, boy, that barbecue smells great. I'm, I'm talking about when, when hair and, and entral and, you know, everything is singed. It's kind of that wretched burning smell. Some of you are going, yeah, and this is kind of wretched. Why are you doing this? Because I want us to get a picture to think about what sin really costs us. We, we look at a pretty cross and we don't think about it. But, you know, when you stood there, you were thinking about your sin. You saw this animal literally die in your hands. You, you, you were reminded as hundreds of burnt offerings were blazing on the altar. And you smelled the wretchedness. You saw the blood. You heard the bleeding of animals as they were dying. And, and you were reminded of, of the cost of sin. As New Testament believers, we read 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's quick and easy because sometimes we don't think about our cost. But people in this day thought about the cost. Now, again, I don't want to go back to that. I'm not advocating that. Praise God for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who paid that penalty for us. But this was one of the offerings, the group of offerings you would bring. There was another called a Thanksgiving offering. And a Thanksgiving offering was a, an above and beyond offering. This, this was something that you would give when maybe you got a bonus at work, you received a raise, uh, you closed some big deal, and you just wanted to say to God, thank you. This is a way of just saying, God, you bless me, I want to bless you. There was something called a free will offering. Now, this is probably the background to what we're looking at in Acts 5. Because a free will offering said, I am giving this just because. There's no reason. There's no requirement. It's, it's just something I want to give to you. There was something called a votive or a vow offering. Have you ever said to God, God, if you'll just let me pass this test in school, I'll do this for you. If you just let me win the lottery, God, you know, that billion five, it, you got a cut in that, God, just, you know, make it mine. And that's a vow offering. I know nobody here got the lottery. Nobody here made that kind of vow. Uh, yes, we did. Um, so there was something called a consecration offering. The consecration offering was a, a special offering where you would give to God based upon a special event. Uh, this is like when the priests were consecrated, there would be a series of special offerings. 
Uh, You see, when there was the birth of a child, remember when Jesus was born, his parents brought him to the temple and they presented offerings. Uh, At Wayside Chapel, we do something kind of like a consecration offering. Next Sunday, we're going to have baby dedications. We're going to have parents who are saying, we want to thank God for the blessing of this child. We want to make a a commitment that we're going to raise them. Now, they don't come to me and say, how much is it going to cost, Pastor, to bless my kid? That's not what we do. But a consecration offering is a time where, again, you paused and you said, how can I, in a tangible way, uh, make a statement, set something apart, whether it's my family saying we're going to raise our children to know and love the Lord or giving a, a gift? Many of you have heard the story of my family. My wife and I went through 14 years of infertility. We tried to have children. We were unable to. We tried to foster. We tried to adopt. God closed those doors. And if you've ever gone through infertility, uh, those families that have done that here, you know the pain and the heartbreak. And you also know there's a financial cost if you're pursuing fertility type of treatments. Uh, It's very costly. And when God blessed us with our first daughter, Sarah, 14 years ago, and then our next daughter, Hannah, and our son, Zachary, we were grateful. We were so thankful to God. And after the birth of our daughter, Sarah, my wife and I independently thought through, what can we do? And we said, why don't we take what we would have spent uh, in fertility treatments trying to continue to have a child, and let's give that as a gift, a consecration offering. And what we did is we gave that to a pregnancy care center. Uh, Today is Sanctity of Life Human Sunday. And what Sanctity of Life Human Sunday is about is President Ronald Reagan said, Uh, The third Sunday in January is to be set aside as a a reminder, a memorial to the, 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 the decision that the U.S. Supreme Court made that said abortion should be legalized in our country. And this is the day that we stop and just pause and say, God, we are sorry. Uh, we have sinned against you. We want to, we want to turn back to you. We want this decision to be overturned as believers. And so this is an appropriate day for you. Just stop and think about that and ask, what can you do? What can you do yourselves to promote the cause of life? And in our case, what we did was we said, we want to give this money to help other families have the gift of life, to come alongside those, those families that are in crisis, that may be struggling with the decision. And so it was a kind of consecration offering. It wasn't a vow we made to God. We didn't say, God, if you will give us a baby, uh, we will do this. It was, it was just an offering that we gave. Another type of offering is what was called a cereal or meal offering. There was also something called a drink or libation offering. You recall that the sacrifices were given, not just in that form of worship to God, but it was also the way that God's uh, priest and Levites and his work was supported. A portion of some of these sacrifices were used to support the priesthood. And as much as I love meat, uh, I'm told it's not healthy if all we eat is bacon and meat and other things. Now, bacon is an unclean food, but I'm saying that because um, these were additional offerings of grain and oil and wine and other things that the priest received. It wasn't just the meat of the offerings on the altar. And so the mirror, these, these offerings were things that were in addition to the, the things that were offered on the altar. A drink or libation offering would be poured out on top of the sacrifice, kind of like you'd make gravy, or it was a, uh, another above and beyond. Now, some things weren't poured out. They would bring it in a, uh, a receptacle and give it to the priest, again, for their support. 
As you think in terms of these offerings, just that picture of a drink offering freely poured out, when you give your resources to God, do you just kind of, there's a drop, that's what God gets, or do we uh, give with abandon? Do we just give to him liberally? Second uh, Corinthians 9, 7 tells us, let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's two things there. It says, just as he's purposed in his heart, there are times we're all uh, moved by something and we want to respond, and that's great, but it, it says that our giving is not to be this knee-jerk, somebody made me cry, somebody guilted me into giving. It's something we're to prayerfully think through. So it's what have you purposed? What have you planned? What have you talked about as a family? But then you see that word, God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word is hilaros. It's where we get our English word hilarious. It doesn't mean we're goofy and, and, you know, that type of thing. But what it means is there is this abandonment. We're not worried. Uh, We're not grudging. Uh, We're not scowling uh, as the offering goes by. Um, You know, when the offering plate comes by, how many of us, there's that moment where you go, here it comes. You know, what do I give? What do I not give? Is anybody going to not notice? And, or, or do you kind of take your thing with a clenched fist and go, there, okay, God, I gave it. I mean, is that how we give? Friends, let me say two things here about giving. First of all, if you are a non-believer, if you are somebody who has not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, please do not give. And you're saying, say that again. I think I heard a pastor just tell me not to give my money. Yes, do not give. Because you see, when we give, remember it is worship. It it is a way that we who are believers in Jesus Christ are worshiping a God we know. It is our way of saying to God, you are worthy of our offering, our praise, our, our giving you the glory you deserve. If you're here and you think you put money in a plate to earn your way to heaven, you cannot do that. The Bible tells us we are saved by faith, through grace, not what we do, not works. You can't buy your way to God. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I don't want you to give. I want you to receive. I want you to receive God's free gift of eternal life to you. I want you to understand that he loved you so much, he went to the cross, and he died to pay the penalty for your sin as he did for mine and that of the other Christians here. And I want you to receive that great gift. Now, for us who are already believers, yes, we should give. We should give not grudgingly, not because we have to. If you're a person who comes to Wayside and you're mad about something or you're mad at God or you're thinking, gosh, there's this tax I have to pay, just keep your money. We don't need it. And you're thinking, do the leaders know you're talking like this, Roger? Yeah, they do. They believe the same way that I do. Because we know that giving to God is is a matter of privilege. It's a way that we who are believers get to partner with God. We get to have a part in God's work. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our money. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can sell it, and he can use the money any way he wants. And so if you're here today, I want you to hear that giving is a a heart overflow issue. It's not about a tax. It's not about doing something you don't want to do. Now, there's another offering. As I say that, I want you to remember that God... As you look at Acts 5, 4, what does it tell you there? Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira, hey, listen, guys. Before you sold the property, it was yours to control. And once you sold the property, 
Nobody told you what to give. You could have given anything you wanted. Again, there's not this tax. Now, there's another offering called a wave or heave offering. And this is one that confuses a lot of people. What is that? Well, I saw one of these uh, TV shysters uh, one time. And they were doing one of these, you know, crusade type of things. And the guy said, uh, there's, there, he was trying to talk about what a wave offering was. And he said, I want you to reach into your purse or your wallet. And I want you to take out the biggest bill you have in there. Leave those ones in there. Don't pull any fives out. Get those fifties, those hundreds. You need to wave that before the Lord. You need to show everybody how much God has blessed you. And so the camera pans to this stadium group, and there's all these people waving their money. And the the guy goes, hallelujah. And uh, that was the signal for the ushers to descend. And so all these people suddenly come out with these buckets. And he says, okay, now take that money you're waving before the Lord and give it to Jesus. And what are you going to do? Uh, yeah. So instead of yelling, hallelujah, he should have yelled, hold up, because that's what it was. <laughs> so I want you to reach in your purse or wallet, take out. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> not doing that. What a wave or a heave offering was, was again, the Bible is very big on uh, pictures, Visuals. Remember, it was an oral tradition, and so it helps people remember. And what the priest would do is he would take your offering after it had been prepared, like there'd be this flank of the animal, and he would he would take it and he would kind of heave it up to heaven. He wouldn't throw it. He'd just kind of he'd go like this and this, and then he'd kind of do this. And you're going, what is all that? Well, what what it was, it was a way of saying, God, what we have has come from you to us. And it is to be used for your glory. And so it was a visual. As people would bring this offering in, they would, they would kind of heave it up and down and wave it side to side. If you read Numbers 8.21, it says, The Levites, too, purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes. And Aaron, the high priest here, presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. Now, he didn't pick the guys up and go like this with them. But what he was doing is saying to the people as they assembled... They would say, God has given to us these, your ministers, to serve you. And so it was this picture of God's provision and how it was to be used for God's work. Now, I told you a moment ago that no one's telling you how much to give. And you may be sitting here saying, yeah, but Roger, there's, there's something in the Bible called a tithe. I mean, I know there's a tithe, and what is that? Well, if you've ever heard somebody tell you about tithing, the word literally means a tenth. A tenth. It's why you hear people say, well, you're supposed to give 10% to God. And some people say, now, is that before taxes or after taxes? Again, this isn't about legalism. This is about your heart overflowing in worship. And so what a tithe was is in the New Testament, you'll recall Jesus was was talking to the, the religious leaders one day. They were coming to him very proudly explaining, well, Lord, we tithe on everything, even our spices. And so what that means is you would go home and pour your salt out on the table and you'd count out nine grains of salt are mine, one for God, nine here, one for God. They, they got down to the minutia and said, we tithe even our spices. And they thought Jesus was going to say, well done, you guys rock. But what did he say to them? He said, you guys are hypocrites. Jesus had this great 
back and forth going with these guys all the time. They'd come up, they'd talk about how righteous they were, all the stuff they did publicly for honor and glory. And Jesus would say, you guys are whitewashed tombs, you're a brood of vipers, you're like a dirty cup on the inside where the outside's clean. And what he's saying is externally, you look spiritual and good, but internally you're not. You see, this was Ananias Sapphira. Externally, they were saying, look at us. We're super spiritual. We're sacrificing. We're giving to God. And what Jesus said is, you guys are being hypocrites. And worse, you're deceiving. You're trying to deceive God. You're trying to think that you can pull one over on the Lord. God isn't one who is concerned about that 10% tax. If you're somebody sitting here today and you're saying, well, this sermon's not for me because I tithe. I do this. Wonderful. Praise God. But if what you're doing is saying, I tithe, and that's, that's what God wants me to do, and I'm done, I fulfill the law, then you've missed it at many levels. The first thing you've done is you've missed the mark in understanding what worship really is. God isn't here to get your money. It's not about fulfilling the law. If you're somebody trying to fulfill the law, Paul tells us in Romans, if you're trying to keep the law, you don't get to do just one part of it. You have to do every single part of the law. And the good news is we don't have to do that because Jesus fulfilled the law and he became our sacrifice. So if you're somebody who's wanting to fulfill the law, the law also says in addition to the tithe, there's the temple tax, the welfare offering. There are special and festival offerings like first fruits and other things. And this is in addition to all we've already talked about, burnt sin, guilt offerings. That doesn't even count. That's to cover your sin. There's the free will, votive, meal, drink. You got all this? And so if you're adding all this up, depending upon how you do it, that's between 23 and 28% of your income. Now, some of you are going, you know, Roger, I kind of like that 10%. Can we talk about that again? So where does this tithing come from? What is tithing? And is it some Old Testament thing that as New Testament believers, we're not supposed to do? Well, tithing... First of all, is a form of worship, as we've been talking about. Second of all, uh, tithing is found in the New Testament. It's there in the book of Hebrews in chapter 7. And the story in Hebrews chapter 7 is tied to what happened in Genesis 14. And I'll summarize it for you, and you can turn to Hebrews 7 if you want, because we're going to read that here in a moment. But as you look at the story there, there was a man by the name of Abraham. And Abraham had a nephew named Lot. And you recall there was a point where Lot was carried away by a group of foreign kings. They came in, they invaded the land where Lot had taken up residence. They carried him and all his stuff away, that loot that you would take with you. And Abraham got a small group of his men, his little band of army, and he went after them. He miraculously defeated this much larger group. He freed Lot and he captured all the loot, the kavod. And as he was carrying that back, he encounters a man by the name of Melchizedek. Now, listen to what Hebrews 7, 1 through 5 tells us. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of the spoils, the tithe. So he looked at all the loot he had, and he said, 10% of this goes to you, to Melchizedek. Now, who is this guy? It says he was, first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, made like the son of God, he abides as a priest perpetually. 
Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have a commandment of the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from the brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. So what's happening here is Abraham is called the patriarch. And Abraham is a man who is revered across the nations. The Jews say Abraham is the father of the nation through the promised line, Jesus Christ being the ultimate promise is the line of Judah. But you remember Abraham and Sarah, if you were here when we went through the series in Genesis, we saw that there was this other son named Ishmael. Ishmael is held up as the son of promise by the Arab or Islamic nations. And this is where the Arab tribes come from. It's why there's such hatred between Jews and Arabs. Now, our missions conference is the first week, one of the weeks we're going to do in uh, the spring, and we're going to do another one in the fall. And you'll want to be here the first Sunday in uh, March, I'm sorry, first Sunday in February when we do this, because we're going to have both an Arab and an Israeli believer here. And you're going to hear about the, the reconciliation, what God is doing in the life and what he's doing over in Israel in the Arab world uh, to bring reconciliation through Hamashiach, the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. And so you have Abraham, the patriarch, and both the Arabs and Israelis and you and I who are Gentile believers revere him. Now, he's seen as the greatest guy. And yet he encounters this guy named Melchizedek. And what does he do? He gives 10% of the spoils to this guy. Now, Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah. He's described as being without beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He's called the King of Salem. The word Jerusalem is this. Salem, Jerusalem. It's the city of peace. This was, he was the king over Jerusalem, and he held a dual office of priest and king. Jesus Christ is our high priest, and he's also the King of kings and Lord of lords. So this is a type of Jesus, uh, the Messiah before. And as Abraham gave it to him, it was giving to God. And then you see that that was carried on, that the gifts that are given to God are used for God's work through the Levitical line. Now, as Abraham gave, it said he gave 10% because he was worshiping. You'll recall that that demonstrated the giving of gifts, acknowledging the superiority of another. A tithe, giving a tithe, is the biblical standard that shows another God is greater than you are and that we are acknowledging that with your gift. That's what tithing is. Tithing isn't a tax. It is a way where we understand that God is greater than we are and we're acknowledging that with our gift. It says in Hebrews 7, 7, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So you're sitting here saying, Roger, this, is, this has all been very interesting, but, you know, just bottom line it for me. Put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Is it 10%? Is that what you're telling me? Let me bottom line it for you. And as I do, let me start with my family. And I don't share this to brag. I don't share this anything. But I know somebody's sitting out here this morning going, yeah, does this preacher practice what he's preaching? What does he do? My family gives the first 10% of my salary straight to Wayside Chapel before taxes, for those of you who are wondering. And so why do we do that? Is it because the elders say, well, Roger, you you need to give 10%? No, they don't do that. Is it because I'm legalistic and I'm fulfilling the law? No. It's because of this. I understand what a biblical tithe is. 
It shows that God is superior to me. It acknowledges kind of he gave it to me and it is to be used for his work. And so I give my family tithes because we acknowledge the superiority of God. And we recognize that it is our privilege to give to his work. Now let me say this as well. We don't let tithing limit us. We don't stop at 10%. Because while I give the first fruits of my salary to Wayside Chapel, there are other things outside of Wayside Chapel that I think are worthy of support. I wish I could uh, be a reverse tither and live on 10% and give away 90%. I can't do that. So what we do is we support Wayside with our first fruits, and then there are other organizations that I believe in, like Dallas Theological Seminary. I was trained at DTS. Uh, I paid a lot of money to go to Dallas Seminary. But in doing so, I also know that my tuition covered only about half the cost of my education. And I want to support other men and women who are being trained for the ministry through an institution I believe teaches the Word of God. So my wife and I give to Dallas Seminary. There are other groups like Jews for Jesus that we think are doing a fantastic work. Their mission statement says they exist to make the Messiahship of Jesus Christ an unavoidable issue to the Jewish people worldwide. They are sharing the gospel unashamedly with fellow Jews. They also share the gospel with Gentiles. But that's a secondary blessing. One of the blessings as well as challenges of being a minister who went through seminary is I know a lot of men and women who are missionaries. And if you think you get a lot of requests to support people, uh, you can have my mailbox. Because I have a lot of friends that are in ministry that are saying, we need to be supported. We want to. And so I can't support them all. And what my family does is we literally have a waiting list. And when somebody uh, retires or comes off the field or something else, we'll move the next one up the line. And so we support some individual missionaries. And you're saying, okay, Roger, that's wonderful. But again, what about me? What am I supposed to do? Here it is. You want the bottom line? Give God your heart. Because what Matthew 6, 21 tells us is, for where your heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Give God your heart. Don't worry about, did I tithe a tenth of my salt? Don't worry about, did I meet this? Did I do that? Give God your heart and the rest will take care of itself. Remember, we're looking at a man by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas came and he freely gave an offering. And it was a wonderful offering. And then we have a man and a woman who came and gave an offering as well. Even at whatever they held back, I'm sure it was sacrificial. And yet what God said to them is, this is not a wonderful offering. Because it was given grudgingly. It was given in deception. Your heart was not truly worshiping me. You were worried about grabbing glory for yourself. You were worried about these things. So we have to ask ourselves, does God have our heart? And if he does, our treasure will follow. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. Your word that is there to teach us and guide us. We thank you, Father, that first of all, it guides us to your son, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And to the truth that he came to be our sacrifice. The Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And so I pray, Lord God, if there's anyone here today who has not yet received your son, that this would be the day of salvation. That today is when they would turn from their sin and to you as their Savior. And Lord God, for the rest of us who have already come to faith, who have received that great gift, 
Father, would we not live in a way where we seek to give to be blessed, but instead we would recognize we're already blessed. We've been given the gift of your son. We've been given the opportunity to be a part of your work. And so may we respond to that in an overflow of worship. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you stand, please, and sing this closing song of worship?